Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously on Truth and Justice. This guy is going for a jog, comes across her, and just grabs her and stabs her to death and runs away. That guy, if he had confronted her and she was not cooperative, he would have punched her in the head and knocked her out and done whatever he wanted to. That guy is not the guy that did what we see on this body. So I have a question for you. Okay. There was apparently a trial, right? There was. Somebody was arrested, tried, and convicted for this? The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Last week, we traveled through time to track the ever-changing story of Jesse's brother, Troy Eldridge. By digging deep into Troy's backstory, we've gained a lot of insight into how he got to the point where he was willing to take the stand to send his own brother away for life. My assessment is that Troy was pushed by his mother to frame Jesse for Kiao's murder. I think that Carol was motivated by the reward money, and Troy was eventually convinced to get on board when Detective Watts convinced him that if he didn't, he would be charged with the murder. My feelings about Troy have definitely taken a shift over the last few weeks. Troy most certainly lied, over and over again, to the police, under oath in the courtroom, and to me. To be honest, I found Troy to be a greedy scoundrel who sold his own brother out for some reward money. Although my opinion of Troy has not shifted far from this, I do find that his backstory at least helps explain why he did what he did. I do not accept this as an excuse, but at the same time, I do believe that Troy found himself in a place where he thought that he had only two choices. Detective Watts appears to have made it abundantly clear. It was either going to be him or Jesse. One way or another, one of the Eldridge boys was going to prison. In today's episode, we're going to learn how the criminal justice system failed Jesse Eldridge from beginning to end. Jesse Eldridge's conviction and life sentence began with a poor initial investigation. Detective Kyle Royster seemed to interview just about everyone in the neighborhood after Kiao's murder. But at the same time, while doing so, he ignored critical leads, like the keys left in the Gove's mailbox. If these keys were in fact placed into the mailbox by Kiao's killer, or even if they were placed in the box by someone else, but she had them with her during the attack, those keys could have contained critical forensic evidence. 
The killer's blood could have been found on those keys, possibly fingerprints on the keys, or on the mailbox. But neither Royster or his partner, Detective Davidson, bothered to go collect the keys or dust the mailbox for prints. And as far as the keys are concerned, we can all speculate about whether or not Keow put them in the box herself, or if Kenneth and Kirby could have missed them in the box for over a week. We can speculate, but at some point we have to accept that the better source of this information was Kenneth himself. At trial, he could not have been any clearer on the subject. At the conclusion of Kenneth's recall testimony, Judge Janice Warder asked him directly, quote, So in your opinion, those keys absolutely could not have been left in that mailbox for that period of time. Kenneth's response, Absolutely not. Royster ignored the keys and initially considered the white Camaro lead to be the most significant in the case. He continued to operate with blinders on until he got a tip about Kenneth Ray Williams. After one interview with Williams, Royster deemed him to be the prime suspect and then later gave up on the case. I say that the initial investigation into Keow's murder was a failure to Jesse because had the real killer been caught... Kiao's family would have at least had some amount of justice, and this entire tragedy with Jesse could have been avoided. We all know what happened once Don Watts picked up the case. There's no question that Jesse was failed by the system when Troy's affidavit was accepted as fact, even with no corroborating evidence and conflicting statements on the record by his own girlfriend. But the failures didn't stop there. After arrest, Jesse was promised that if he passed a polygraph test, that he would be released and the police would begin their investigation again. He took the polygraph, passed, and District Attorney Howard Blackman wrote it off as an inadmissible test and moved forward with the trial. As Blackman prepared to present a case consisting of just one eyewitness, Jesse's court-appointed attorney, Steve Miller, made what I believe to be a critical error in planning for Jesse's defense. The Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution gives us the right to be tried by a jury of our peers. In order for a person to be convicted of a crime, a prosecutor is burdened with convincing 12 ordinary citizens that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Not 10, not 11. In order to secure a conviction, the state needs a unanimous decision. It only takes one juror to vote not guilty for the prosecution to fail. Supreme Court Justice Byron White once said, quote, The purpose of a jury is to guard against the exercise of arbitrary power, to make available the common-sense judgment of the community as a hedge against the overzealous or mistaken prosecutor, and in preference to the professional or perhaps overconditioned or biased response of a judge. End quote. The concept behind a trial by jury is to ensure that innocent men and women are not sent away to prison for crimes that they did not commit. No one person should hold the life of another in their hands. But in Jesse's case, that's exactly what happened. While sitting in jail awaiting trial, Jesse's attorney made attempts to convince him that the prosecution's case was so weak that he would be better off with what is known as a bench trial. A bench trial occurs when a defendant waives his or her right to have their case heard by a jury. The judge listens to the case and rules from the bench. 
the burden of proof is the same, but in a bench trial, only one person needs to be convinced of guilt, rather than 12. Miller assured Jesse that Janice Warder was a fair judge and that she would be his best bet at an acquittal. Jesse stubbornly refused. He said that he wanted 12 clear-minded individuals to look into his brother's eyes and be convinced that he was telling the truth. Jesse was sure that there were not 12 people in the world that would believe Troy's story. As Jesse's trial date approached, Miller spoke with his girlfriend, Glenda Dixon, known by Jesse as Lou. Miller was able to convince Lou that a bench trial was the way to go. At that point, Jesse had his girlfriend and his attorney assuring him that Warder was a fair judge and that a bench trial was his best course of action. But Jesse still wasn't convinced. He's told me many times that he just can't believe that any 12 sane people would believe Troy. But ultimately, Jesse ended up hearing out an unlikely advisor and opted to waive his right to a jury. You actually elected to have to waive your right to a jury and just have a bench trial where only the judge hears the case with no jury, right? Yes, sir. Why did you d- decide to do that? I was told by my uh, ex-girlfriend, I was told by, well, even my attorney, Miller, that the judge was fair, that I'd get a fair hearing, that everything was would be above board. Uh, Captain Kirkendall of the Dallas uh, Sheriff's Department even came to my jail cell and encouraged me to go for a bench trial because the judge was fair. And, uh, I'm going to tell you this, the very first day of the trial, if you care to read my transcripts, you can read the transcripts and you can already see that uh, the judge had her mind made up that I was guilty already for just walking in the courtroom. Jesse's not wrong here. Throughout the transcripts, it definitely appears that Judge Warder was rendering preference to the state. Nearly all of Miller's objections were overruled, and nearly all of the states were sustained. At times, it almost seemed like she was toying with Miller. Here's an excerpt from Detective Don Watts' testimony. Watts had just testified that Carol had told him that Jesse had told her about Keow's necklace. Miller had already objected to these statements as hearsay and was overruled. And now he's objecting because the judge had granted a pretrial motion for any statements made by Jesse to be turned over to the defense before trial. In this instance, Warder almost sounds like she's agreeing with Miller. From the trial, Miller, I'll ask you to disregard all of this. Judge Warder, you're asking me to disregard it on the grounds that it's non-responsive, is that correct? Miller, well, it's also being offered at a time when the court has already ordered the state to produce that evidence to me and did not. Warder. Well, I think it's being offered in response to a direct question that was not asked by the state. To question was there's nothing else to connect. Is that correct? Miller. Right. Warder. Overruled. You see this throughout the trial. Objection. Overruled. Over and over again. The most common objection by Miller is on the basis of hearsay. Judge Warder allowed Troy to testify about what Keow said, about what Jesse said, and about what his mother said. Also, Detective Watts testified as to what Carol Eldridge had said. The list goes on and on. None of these statements should have been allowed due to the hearsay rule. Simply stated, the hearsay rule does not allow a witness to testify about something that someone else said. Nonetheless, this testimony was allowed. And I believe that Jesse was right. 
when he said that he believed the judge most definitely had a predisposition for the state. The prosecution presented their case to Judge Warder by calling only nine witnesses. Most of them have already been discussed. The state opened with Kenneth Gove, then came Greg Clark, the first responder on the scene, Kevin Marco, the trainee officer who was the first police officer to arrive, We've heard Sheila Spotswood, the medical examiner's testimony, of course, Troy and Carol Eldridge, and the state closed with J.A. Mismash. His testimony was brief. He was the officer who arrested Jesse. The state did call two other witnesses that we have not heard from yet. Daniel Cannon, who collected the evidence at the scene, and Charles Lynch, the forensic examiner. Cannon doesn't seem to know anything about the case. His testimony is only 10 pages long, and it basically lists the items that he collected. Cannon testified that he collected the following evidence at the crime scene. The blanket that Danny Stanbury used to cover Keow's body, one gold headband, and the butcher knife found in Keow's left hand. Cannon testified that he processed the knife for fingerprints and found nothing. He also testified that he collected a strand of hair that was found on the fence post at the opening between the sidewalk and the school grounds. The hair was placed into a Petri dish, and the blanket, headband, and knife were placed into a paper bag. All of these items were sent to the Southwestern Institute for Forensic Science, or SWIFTS, for further testing. That was the entirety of the evidence collected from the scene. Keep in mind, however, the Kiao's body had already been transported to the hospital prior to Cannon's arrival. After being pronounced dead, her body was transferred to Sheila Spotswood for autopsy. Spotswood then sent everything she found on Keow's body to Charles Lynch and his team of forensic examiners at Swift's. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Charles Lynch was a trace evidence analyst at the Southwest Institute of Forensic Sciences. He began working in the trace evidence section four years before Kiao's murder. The evidence in Kiao's case was originally analyzed by a man named Tim Fallon. Lynch later worked on the case after Jesse's attorney requested further testing of the evidence. District Attorney Howard Blackman put Lynch on the stand in an attempt to convince Judge Warder that there's at least a possibility that Jesse Eldridge committed this murder. However, by the time the defense was done cross-examining Lynch, it became painfully apparent that his testimony was no more than smoke and mirrors. Lynch and Fallon analyzed the blanket that was placed over Keow's body, her headband, 
her clothes, and several hairs. During the initial investigation, Fallon discovered and analyzed numerous dark brown head hairs, animal hairs, and assorted colored threads that came off of the blanket. Keep in mind that this blanket came from inside Danny Stanberry's house, so we would expect to find hair from members of his family and pets. On Kiao's clothing, Fallon found a 7 to 8 inch blondish hair, a 9 to 10 inch blonde head hair, and numerous dark hairs and some shorter Caucasian hair fragments. Shortly after Watts took over the case in 1993, he requested for the lab to re-examine Kiao's clothes to look for scuff or drag marks. No scuff or drag marks were found. Four head hairs were found on Kiao's headband. The hairs were found to be microscopically similar to Kiao's. Fallon also examined the hair that was found on the fence post near Kiao's body. According to Lynch's testimony, this hair was also found to be microscopically similar to Kiao's. After Jesse was arrested, he voluntarily submitted blood and hair samples to the lab. Troy also submitted samples. At the time of the murder, Jesse had short brown hair, and Troy had longer, blondish hair. Of all the hairs found on the crime scene, one was found to possess some microscopically similar characteristics to Jesse, and one of the blonde hairs found on the clothing were found to be microscopically similar to Troy. The hair that was microscopically similar to Troy had an ample route for DNA testing. After the DNA test, Troy was ruled out as the contributor. What appeared to be a possible piece of evidence that could connect Jesse and Troy to the crime scene eventually turned out to be nothing more than a red herring. At trial, Lynch explains why. From the transcripts, These are very common type blonde hairs. Many blonde-headed individuals have this type of hair. I have referred to it in my report and it's referred to among hair examiners as a common featureless hair. That's what it is. Common in the population and it's featureless. When you look under the microscope, there's no detail to compare. No good pigment pattern to associate to the other hair. It's almost like comparing two pieces of white paper. Lynch had the same thing to say about the one hair that had similar microscopic characteristics to Jesse's. From the trial. Question. The same analysis on the defendant's hair then, Jesse Eldridge. Same conclusion? Answer. Similar type of hair. It's light brown hair, but there just aren't many microscopic features to compare. It again is a type of hair that's encountered commonly in the population. The goal of the hair examiner is to see a microscopic pigment pattern that goes from root end to tip that he can compare and come to a conclusion as to whether that hair could have come from a particular donor. In this instance, the amount of pigment pattern just isn't there in the blonde hairs or in the light brown hair that was microscopically similar to Mr. Jesse Eldridge. While the prosecution made a valid attempt to use Lynch's testimony about the hair to connect the Eldridges to the crime scene, Jesse's defense was able to draw the truth out of Lynch during cross-examination. From the trial. Question. And based on the fact the hairs you talked about, at least the three that all of us in this courtroom are most concerned about, the one-inch brown head hair and the two long blonde hairs, the fact you've identified those as common featureless hairs did not really identify either Jesse or Troy Eldridge as the donor of those hairs, did it? Answer. Not at all. Lynch goes on to say that this hair would be similar to anyone with brown hair. 
Lynch's testimony can be summarized quite simply in regards to the evidence tying Jesse to the crime scene. There was a short brown hair found on Kiao's clothes, and Jesse just happened to have brown hair. We also learned from Lynch's testimony that the hairs found on the scene were only ever compared to Kiao, Troy, and Jesse. Police never got hair samples from the Stanberries, the Goves, or any of the first responders. There was never any attempt made by police to rule anyone out as the donor of these hairs. Aside from Lynch and Fallon's work, there were two other items of forensic evidence that were tested by Sheila Spotswood. There was blood found under Kiao's fingernails. Spotswood analyzed the blood and determined it to be Kiao's. Lastly, Spotswood analyzed the butcher knife that was found in Kiao's hand. Her report reads as follows. Neither human DNA of sufficient quantity nor DNA DQA product were obtained from item 15 knife. It's important to note that this testing wasn't performed on the knife until December of 1995, after Jesse was arrested, and the request to test the knife was made by Jesse himself. The bad news is that there was not sufficient quantities of blood or skin in the knife for DNA testing. The good news is that now, 22 years later, only a single cell is necessary to obtain a DNA profile. That was the entirety of the state's case against Jesse Eldridge. One unreliable eyewitness, a mother who just knew in her heart that her son had killed Kiao, and one brown hair. As soon as the state rested, Jesse's attorneys made a motion to Judge Warder to dismiss the case. Miller pleaded that the state failed to prove Jesse's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Judge Warder denied the motion, and it was time for Steve Miller to present his defense. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. it's nearly impossible to prove that something didn't happen. This task becomes even more difficult when you're forced to defend against the wind. The thing about wind is that you know it's there. You can feel its effects, but you can't put your finger on it. It has no substance. It's difficult to determine where it's coming from or why it's blowing. You can't grab a hold of it, and you can't stop it. The wind is simply wind. The point here is that the state's case had no substance. It was nothing more than a made-up story. And how do you defend against that? Jesse's attorney was tasked with convincing the judge that Troy was lying. That was it. That's all he had to do. With no corroborating evidence, if Miller could take down Troy, the state's case would crumble before their eyes. 
Unfortunately for Jesse, rather than attacking the credibility of Troy's testimony, Miller's strategy instead was to deflect attention to alternate suspects. Miller called even fewer witnesses than the prosecution. He began by putting Troy and Jesse's sister Christine on the stand. Her testimony consisted of explaining how she believed that the knife that she found in her apartment four years after the murder belonged to Troy and that Carol was an alcoholic, a liar, and a shitty mother. Next, Miller called Jesse James Swindell to recount his statement about seeing Keow being dragged into the white Camaro on the morning of the murder. After that, Watts was called in an attempt to attack the integrity of his investigation, and it was more of the same when Miller called Detective Royster. Kenneth Ray Williams was then put on the stand to testify to the fact that he may or may not have been living in the area at the time, and that he knows exactly nothing about the murder of Kiao Gove. During the defense's argument, Miller finally called Troy to the stand for cross-examination. With Troy on the stand, I expected to see Miller attack the details of his testimony. But this never happened. Troy was never asked what Kia was wearing. He was never asked if she was carrying anything. He was never asked why he jumped the fence when there was an opening right there. Nor were the phone records ever pulled to verify the supposed call that Troy made to his mother that morning. Nothing. Instead, Miller's strategy was to present Troy as another alternate suspect. He brought up the knife found in his sister's apartment years after the offense. The knife that Sheila Spotswood had already testified could not have been the murder weapon. Everything seemed to be falling on deaf ears to the judge. At one point, Miller asked Troy if he ever threatened a man named David with a knife. This is from the trial. Miller, did you ever get arrested for threatening David with a knife? Blackman, judge, I'm going to object to the relevancy or admissibility of that. That has nothing to do. Judge Warder doesn't even let Blackman finish his objection before she interjects. Sustained. Miller's defense as a whole could be summed up with this question to Troy. Quote, Troy, you had just as much an opportunity to commit this offense as anybody else. Wouldn't you agree with that? That was it. That was the defense. Maybe the guys in the Camaro did it. Maybe Kenneth Ray Williams did it. Or maybe Troy did it. No alibi witnesses. No experts. Shauna wasn't called. Nothing. The defense rested on the simple stand that the state did not prove their case. After short closing arguments from both attorneys, Judge Janice Warder pronounced her verdict. Guilty. In 1991, Jesse Eldridge most certainly couldn't be described as a good man. He was a drug addict and a thief with a quick temper. The characteristics that I just described tell the story of what a man did. They do not tell the story of who a man is. After the verdict was read, the proceedings quickly moved into the sentencing phase. Jesse was given the opportunity to testify before the judge before she sentenced him. 
against the advice of his attorney, Jesse opted to testify. To close the show today, I'm going to read to you what Jesse had to say at trial. Clean and sober from a year and a half in the county jail, this is the man that Jesse Eldridge is. I've done a lot of things in my life. I've done some ugly things. Things that I've never been caught for. Things I'm ashamed of now. And things I've been ashamed of in the past. Anytime I'm caught, I confess. I've always considered coming to the courtroom a game. Because the most I would let them do, and I say let because of the term plea bargain, the most I would let them do is take away a couple of years at a time. Because I never much cared. This instance, and I know you can stop me if I get too out of hand here, but this instance, this is the first time I've ever been accused of anything that I haven't done. This was the first time I've ever faced losing my entire life. It's put me through a lot of changes. Mentally, God mentally, emotionally, it's affected a whole lot of people. I found out I have a lot of friends. But I also have a whole lot of people who I've hurt their feelings. I've been called names in here. Things have been insinuated. I've never attacked a woman. I've never done anything along those lines, period. There's just no cause for that. I never struck Troy Eldridge in anger, ever. All this love you heard going around, it doesn't exist. Carol Eldridge doesn't love me, and I just couldn't accept that. Jay Eldridge doesn't love me. I couldn't accept that either. I tried to fit in. And granted, you know, I lost track of time, you know. And that leaves me here now. You've got effectively the rest of my life in your hands. You've had it in your hands for the past 16 months. I'm going to have to live with this. I hope everybody that got in this so-called stand here and lied, because I'm going to tell you right now, I know they lied but my word is no good either. So I hope Howard Blackman gets his chance to ask me his questions now, because I would like to answer a whole bunch of questions if he wants to. After hearing from Jesse and both attorneys, Judge Warder, without any ado, delivered her sentence. From the transcript, Blackman closes his final argument. Quote, the facts of the case warrants a life sentence, and that's what the state asks. There was no break taken after the arguments. The next line in the transcripts reads as follows. Mr. Eldridge, would you stand, please? I set your punishment at life confinement in the penitentiary. Before Jesse was hauled away, he didn't lash out in anger. He didn't address the judge or his attorney, or the prosecutor. The final word in Jesse's transcript are Jesse's words to Kenneth Gove. Mr. Gove, I didn't kill your wife. I didn't do it, Mr. Gove. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Our sound engineer is Shane Yoder. 
All music for the show was composed and scored by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating and managing our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn. And thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And don't forget that you can always leave voicemails for the Friday follow-up episodes at 269-224-2833. You can like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.